this is it. This is the end. This is the last week in Philippians. I wasn't sure if that would get like a yay or like a no kind of response. Just nothing. (laughs) Um, I suspect that some of you are perhaps thinking, what more? What more could we possibly squeeze out of this short letter of Paul's? It's only four chapters for crying out loud. Isn't 16 weeks enough? And the reason I suspect you're thinking that is not because um, I'm cynical, but because that's exactly what I was thinking when I sat down on Monday morning um, to think about this sermon. What more is there to say? Haven't we said it all by now? Um, but you know, one of the, the truly remarkable things about God's Word is it doesn't matter if you've read it ten times or a hundred times, God can still speak to you through it if your heart is open. And so after I reminded myself of that, um, I read the letter again. Um, very carefully, looking for any truths we may have missed, any hidden gems, any obscurities in the Greek. I took copious notes, prayed a lot. Um, And in the end, what I felt like God was saying to me, what I felt like I needed to share with you this morning, is simply this. To live is Christ. It's what we called the series, Back when we started, it's on the uh, title card behind me, based, of course, on Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And what I noticed is I read through this letter again and again and again, that this statement of faith that Paul makes in chapter 1 is all-encompassing. It's everything to him. Christ really is his whole life. As Tim Mackey says on the video we've just watched, he saw his life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And as I read, I noticed there are four distinct ways that this comes across in his letter to the Philippians. Four ways this breaks down. Firstly, he lives for Christ. Secondly, he lives in Christ. Thirdly, He lives like Christ. And fourthly, he lives with Christ. And so those are the four areas I just want to spend a short amount of time unpacking for you a little bit this morning as we draw this series to a close. And we're going to jump all over the letter. So if you haven't done so already, if you'd open your Bibles to one um, Philippians, that would be fantastic. And I will put most of the scriptures um, up on the screen as we go Along. But let's begin with what it means to live for Christ, according to Paul. We first see this particular idea in Paul's letter in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's evidenced in the way that Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul sees himself as a servant of Jesus first. In his own mind, his greatest credential is his submission to Christ. Paul could have introduced himself in any number of ways to the Philippians. He had many impressive things written on his CV. He could have said, Paul, the founder and leader of the church in Philippi. Or he could have said, Paul, a missionary to Asia Minor and Europe and writer of many important letters. Or he could have said, Paul descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee and a keeper of the law, a righteous man. Or even he could have just said, Paul, 
a maker of fine tents, and all of them would have been true. Some of them might even have helped his PR, you know, painted him in a more positive light, made people sit up and pay attention. But all of those achievements didn't matter to Paul. Not anymore. In fact, in chapter 3, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage or rubbish, because we're British, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And so Paul's CV is bare. It just says, servant of Christ. I live to serve him. That's it. Nothing else at all. And this decision to live for Christ, it had a significant impact on Paul's life. Before he knew Jesus, he was well respected. He was a person of importance, a person of stature. He may well have been a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council for the Jewish people, because he talks in Acts about casting his vote against the followers of Jesus. We know he was given authority from the chief priests to hunt down believers and imprison them. He was to be feared. People would cross the street when he walked their way. But when he made the decision to live for Christ, all of that changed. He went from being well respected to being chased out of towns and villages. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned. He himself was imprisoned on many occasions. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. My decision to follow Jesus has led me here. I'm in chains for him. Because, you know, sometimes living for Jesus is not an easy thing. I made my decision to start living for Jesus when I was nine or ten, I think. I can't remember exactly because it wasn't like a special event or a camp or anything. I was alone in my bedroom. And I remember praying, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I'm sure I said some other things around that. But that particular phrase, I want to live my life for you, has stuck with me through the years. Because it was a turning point in my life. I'm not suggesting for a moment that I've lived my life for Jesus every day since I was 10 years old. Of course not. But that decision I made on that day has never left me. And at times, it's led to some difficult choices. I've had to say no to some things that at the time I really wanted to say yes to. Because I had that awareness that my life was not my own. And I love that observation they make on the video that actually... Right now in prison for Paul, if it ends in execution, that's a, that's a good thing. Because it means he can finally be with his Lord and Saviour. He can be free, but he, he recognises that even now under house arrest, his life is not his own. He's living for Jesus. And that great poem of chapter 2 reminds us of the reality of this. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' story, but it's become Paul's story too. 
Like Jesus, he's given up what authority and power he had to live and serve others, even if ultimately it would mean his death. On one occasion, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And I'm sure, like me, many of you have prayed that prayer, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I don't know how many of us have prayed, Jesus, I want to follow you even unto death, because that's what taking up the cross really means. But what I want you to notice about this command of Jesus is this morning is it's not a one-time thing. This isn't a decision you make at some point in your life, and then that's it, you're in the club, you're set for life. Jesus said we're to take up our cross daily. Every single day to ensure that just like Paul, we're living to serve him first. We need to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus today? Am I living for him today? Well, I suppose today is easy. We're in church, so we're all fine, right? But what about tomorrow? What about as we head out to work or head out with our friends? Do we pray, Jesus, I'm going to live for you today? Or do we pray, Jesus, just get me through the day? Just give me an easy one, will you? What about when things get really tough, like they did for Paul? Will we still decide to live for Christ then? I think one of the things that can help us is ensuring that we remain in Christ, which brings me to my second point this morning. We live in Christ. And so again, this is an idea that we see at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He um, tells them that they are God's holy people in Christ Jesus. And as we read through the letter, what becomes clear is that Paul wants the Philippians to remain in Christ Jesus. On more than one occasion, he encourages them to stand firm. He writes in 1.27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for faith in the gospel. And later in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Remain in him. Stand firm. And the reason I think Paul wants the Philippians and us to remain in him is because he knows that without the power and without the presence of God in our lives, we're unlikely to last the distance. That's why he reminds us in chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. If you remain in him, God will continue to work in your life. And again in 2.13, it's God who works in you in order to will and act, in order to fulfill his good purpose. So what exactly does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, Jesus himself spoke about remaining in him in John chapter 15. We read this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burn. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory 
that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And I think what this teaches us is that remaining in Jesus is about remaining involved with what he is doing here on earth. In is involved. Bearing fruit that brings glory to God is the way that um, Jesus puts it here in John's Gospel. And I think it's really interesting in this passage in John that Jesus talks about how he becomes our joy and that our joy is made complete. Because one of the defining characteristics of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy. Check it out for yourselves later. Go through with a, a highlighter and highlight all the times he says joy or rejoice. You'll be there for quite a while. But what's more interesting is the types of things that bring Paul joy. The types of things that cause him to rejoice. Let me give you some examples. In 1 verse 4 he says, In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's partnership with the Philippians in the job of bringing about the good news, the gospel, to the world is what brings him joy. In 1.18 he says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Hearing that people are preaching about Christ, are spreading the good news, causes Paul to rejoice. 125, he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This one's slightly different. Paul wants to see the Philippians progress in their faith so that they too will be filled with joy. 2.2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being in one spirit and mind. Seeing the church unified and growing and working together with one purpose brings Paul joy. 2.17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This one's even stranger. Paul is rejoicing in his suffering for the gospel, encouraging the Philippians to do the same. And I could go on. I won't because I'll be here all morning, but it goes into chapter 2, 3, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I say it again, rejoice. And what do we notice? about the things that bring Paul joy, they're the same things that motivated Jesus. They're the same things. Quoting Isaiah, Jesus said of himself, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus travelled around telling people good news, bringing joy into people's lives. He got excited when he saw people stepping out in faith, growing in the knowledge of God. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He suffered at the hands of many and ultimately gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for the world. You see, Jesus' motivations had become Paul's motivations. The things that Jesus delighted to do, Paul delighted to to do also. And what he wants for the Philippians and for us is to experience that same joy. The joy that comes from living for God, fulfilling his purposes on earth and being involved with and living for the kingdom of God here and now. 
You see, the promise of John 15 is that if we remain in Jesus and he in us, we will bear much fruit. God will produce good things in us. But you know, if you're looking at this this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I'm, not, yeah, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if I'm living for God or if I'm involved in his purposes right now. Please don't panic because Paul is super practical about it. Firstly, he reassures us in this letter that he isn't there yet. He says in 3.12, not that I've already obtained all of this or I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of what Christ took hold of for me. And secondly, he tells us how we can remain in him. We looked at it a few weeks ago in chapter 4. And he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. Spend some time in God's presence. Invest in your relationship with him. Cultivate a healthy prayer life. Spend time in the scriptures, learning from Jesus. Again, John 15, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It doesn't mean God's going to grant our wishes like some sort of genie, but rather as we draw closer to him, as we understand his heart more, his desires become our desires. As we remain in him and experience the joy of knowing him, the decision to live for him daily becomes an easier one to make. And so Paul wants us to remain in him. He wants us to choose to live for him, but he also wants us to live like him. We live like Christ. On a scale of one to ten, how Christ-like are you right now? There's a question. No one's going to venture a number. Because, you know, discipleship, it's all about learning to become like the person that we're following. Right? That's the point of discipleship. So how are we doing on that front? Some days, I think I'm like a solid four. Four out of ten. That's okay, right? Sort of on the way. Maybe I've been speaking about God or helping someone or praying with someone. I think, yeah, 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 I've got this Christian thing down. I'm down with the G-O-D, you know me. And then normally what happens is about 30 or 40 minutes later, I do something really dumb and super unchristlike and think, nah, actually, I'm like a minus six. Um, and it's, it's a bit disheartening, isn't it? You think, I'm making progress. I'm doing well in my faith. I'm walking with Jesus. And then, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> Something's gone wrong. But I don't think we should lose heart. Because I think the reality is we're all a work in progress. None of us are the finished product, so to speak. A number of years ago, before um, we had children, uh, Sean and me visited Barcelona for a holiday in Spain. Um, and while we were there, we saw lots of uh, architecture by the famous Spanish architect, Antoni Gaudi. Um, and one of the most impressive things was the Sagrada Familia. Um, which is this huge uh, Roman Catholic church right in the centre of uh, Barcelona. Uh, this is it here. And it's amazing. It's, it's massive. Uh, and Gaudi, he began work on it in 1883 when the former architect resigned. And he worked on the building until he died in 1926 at the age of 73. Um, and at his time of death, the building project was less than a quarter complete. Less than a quarter 
And so Spain have been working on this project ever since. Um, in 2010, it passed the midway point, um, and they're hoping due to advances in the field to get it done by 2026. Uh, but some of the biggest challenges still remain, including the construction of 10 more spires, each representing um, a biblical character from the New Testament. If they get it done by 2026, it will be 100 years since Gaudi passed away. And so the church in Barcelona has earned a nickname, and the nickname is the Unfinished Church. And in actual fact, I think it's a pretty good nickname for all of us as well. I think we are the Unfinished Church, both individually and collectively. We're not there yet. And so throughout this letter of Paul's, he wants to remind us to keep working on ourselves. He says things like this in chapter 1, verse 9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want your love to keep growing. I want you to to discern the best way forward. Add another spire to the church. In 2.12, he says, Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep going. Work on the, the next step. Take seriously this construction project that is your life with Christ. In 3.17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Follow the plans. Stick to the blueprints. They're still following Gaudi's plans. If you go inside the church, there's a little model of what it's eventually going to look like when it's done. And for Paul, his model was Jesus. He saw his life as a lived expression of Jesus' story. And we need to too. And in 4.8, he says, Brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Look for those next steps. Look for those things that you can add into your life. And so I wonder if a, a good question that we can ask ourselves as we reflect on this book together is, which part of the building project do we need to work on next? And Philippians has so many good examples, so many great things that we can be working on. For instance, Paul's, Paul's heart for the lost. How are we doing sharing our faith? Is that something we need to work on? Paul's faith in, in his suffering. How are we at doing walking with God when things are tough? Paul's prayer for the church. How are we at, at holding our Christian brothers and sisters in prayer? Paul's appeal for unity. How are our relationships with other believers? Paul's desire to keep moving forward. How are we at letting go of the past and pressing on to the goal? Even Paul's praise of Timothy and Epaphrodites. How are we at encouraging others, building others up? And they're just a few examples from chapters 1 and 2. There are many, many more. His thankfulness, his generosity, his identity in Christ. The point is we're all unfinished. There's all things we can be working on. It's going to take them over a lifetime to finish the Sagrada Familia. I suspect it's going to take at least a lifetime for God to make us Christ-like. Elizabeth Elliot once said, One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. Which bits do we need to surrender today? 
It's important to remember, of course, though, that we're not alone in this. We have our Christian brothers and sisters alongside us, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us as we go. Paul says at the end of his letter, I've learnt the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry or living in plenty or want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. And Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is on this journey with us. He's right alongside us. And that's my final point this morning. We live with Christ. And Paul saw Jesus as a constant companion, someone who was with him through the good times and the bad times as well. And we've, as we've just read, he talks about the strength he receives from Christ. He also talks about longing for the Philippians with the affection of Christ talks about the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. He talks about being united with Christ. As Tim Mackey said on the video, knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal and transforming encounter. But there is a second way in this letter in which Paul hopes to be with Jesus. And that comes at the end of his life. It comes on the day that he's going to meet him face to face. It's a day that he's anticipating It's a day that he's eagerly looking forward to in chapter 1 as he's contemplating his potential execution at the hands of the Roman government. He says this, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's longing for that day. And more than that, he's aware that this is a day that's going to arrive for all of us. At several points in the letter, he refers to the day of Jesus Christ, the point where we'll all stand before him. In chapter 2, he encourages the Philippians to hold firmly to the words of life so they'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that he did not run or labour in vain. He wants us to hold on to the end, to finish the race still in love with Jesus. And really, all of this, it comes back to that poem in chapter 2 that we mentioned earlier, the one that begins... With Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But it continues. That's not the end of the poem. He says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We sang about it just before I came up to preach. This poem doesn't end in Christ's death. It ends in his exaltation. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is standing in victory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. And Paul, who saw his life as a lived expression of Jesus' story, knew that despite his present circumstances, his present suffering, his future was secure. He writes in 3.10, I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. As followers of Jesus, we live in the middle of that poem in chapter 2, identifying with and being strengthened by Jesus, but always with the knowledge that one day we will be with him as he stands in victory. The hardship is temporary. The future in Jesus' presence is eternal. 
Or as Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthians, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we don't lose hope. We don't give up. Just like Paul, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. I'm drawing to a close, I promise. I showed you this slide um, earlier in the series, um, and it's, uh, it's a word cloud that I made for the letter of Philippians. And you, you make a word cloud by feeding all of the words from the book into a bit of software, and it shows you, it rearranges the words and shows you which words are used most, which words are most prominent in the book or the letter. And as you can see, in Paul's mind, Christ looms the largest. Is this true for us as well? What would the word cloud of our lives look like, I wonder? There's something to chew over as you're having your dinner. I wonder if the band would uh, come and join me. I'm going to wrap up in a minute or two. As I said at the start, we're going to just have a few moments here at the end for reflection and prayer. But I want to um, give you some homework, if that's okay. I know most of the life groups aren't meeting, so... You've got lots of free time. (laughs) I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to read the letter to the Philippians again. Just one more time. Just one more. I want you to allow God to speak to you through it. To perhaps reflect on some of the, the teaching that we've heard through this series. And maybe something you could do is reflect on the four areas that we've looked at this morning. And maybe just ask some questions of ourselves. Firstly, do I live for Christ? Some of you may never have made that decision. And I would just want to encourage you that, for me personally, it was the best decision that I ever made. And I would encourage anyone to do the same. But if you did make that decision, you have made that decision, how is that going? Are you taking up your cross daily? Or just kind of when it suits Secondly, are we living in Christ? Are we involved with what Jesus is doing here and now in this place? Is there fruit of that in our lives? Do we delight in the same things that Jesus delights in? And if not, then then what steps do we need to take? Do we need to spend more time with him? Do we need to know him more? Do we need to understand his heart more? Maybe some of us need to fall in love with him all over again. Thirdly, do we live like Christ? The answer is no. The answer is always no. But what areas do we need to work on next? Where do we need to grow? Where do we need to surrender? Where do we need to put up? What do we need to lay down? And fourthly, do we live with Christ? Is he our constant companion, our close confidant? Paul was excited about meeting Jesus. He was looking forward to that day when they would see each other face to face. Is that our reality as well or not? And if not, then then why not? I just hope that some of those questions will perhaps help you reflect as you read through um, this letter that we've been studying together again. I wonder if perhaps you'd stand um, with me this morning. I'm going to pray and then these guys are going to just lead us um, in a time of worship and reflection.